0: approach you today with confidence because you are our great high priest. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage that deals with a lot of Old Testament ideas and and we see the fulfillment in Christ, I pray that you'd give us eyes to understand this and to truly comprehend it. And Lord, I pray that uh, you take the most mature believers in here, and the youngest believers in here, and Lord, those that may not even understand the gospel. And I pray, Lord, your spirit would uh, illumine all of our hearts. And Lord, I pray you'd bring those that have never seen the glory and the the goodness of the gospel, that it would be so exciting to them today. And Lord, I pray that as Christians, we would all be encouraged, uh, regardless of where we're at this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, this morning, the message is titled, Jesus, our high priest. Jesus, our high priest. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on two commands that are listed in verses 14, 15, and 16. 16 and we're going to try to look at those commands and understand them in light of the fact that Jesus is our high priest. How does the fact that Jesus being our high priest help us understand how to live out of the commands that were given this morning? Let's read verse 14 down through verse 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens what appears to be Jewish Christians that are tempted in light of the persecution they're facing and in light of the circumstances they're dealing with, they're at least tempted to go back to Judaism. And and the author of Hebrews is, we've, we've really looked at this series as entitled The Supremacy of Jesus, that the author wants to show this Jewish audience how much greater Jesus is than anything you can come up with when you look at the Old Testament. And we saw that in the beginning of this letter where he shows us that Jesus is greater than the prophets, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is greater than Joshua, and that today what we see is is that Jesus is greater than the high priest of the Old Testament. And it's as if he takes any type of argument they might bring to the surface and says, look, Jesus so far outweighs anything you can come up with. Let me show you who he is. Today, two commands that we're going to take a close look at. But notice right off the bat, before we jump into the outline, the, the phrase here in verse 14, he says, since. If you've got a new American standard, which I really love, I love the ESV and the New American Standard in my two favorite translations. The, the, the New American Standard says therefore instead of since. So, so how does this connect? What did we just look at in verse 12 and 13? We came out of the beginning of chapter 4 where we started talking about this idea of spiritual rest. And we talked about he uses four types of rest in chapter 4. He says there's this Work of creation rest, where God creates the world and he rests on the seventh day. And so we learn by that that God is the one who establishes rest. It's his idea. It's his rest to give and to impart. But then we saw the promised land rest when we read about the children of Israel and we see this uh, desire for them to go into the land of Canaan and we see this promised land. He, he, he shows us that even though Moses and a lot of the people of Israel, all but two went into the land. Joshua led the people into the land. but even though Joshua led the people into the land, it wasn't the the rest that God envisioned it wasn't the, it was a, it was a foreshadowing of it. This rest that that comes in Christ is the fulfillment, and so we got into the third type of rest, which is the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest is really the picture that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. And when we trust in Christ and we believe on Jesus and he becomes our salvation, it is the epitome that we no longer are working to please God. We rest in the work of Christ. This morning, even as we get started, a simple question, whose work are you depending on today? Are you depending on your work or are you depending on the work of Christ? A lot of people depend on their own work. The, even the mindset of why they go to church, the mindset of why they read the Bible, the mindset of everything they do as a Christian is actually a desire to find God's approval. Sabbath rest is resting not in ours. It's resting in Jesus' work as our substitutionary atonement. But we also talked about because of that rest, the Christian is invited to live out of this rest. And we talked about how sometimes as Christians, even though we've received God's rest, we're not living out of that rest. We, we rest in Christ when we rest in his promise, when we rest in his provision, when we rest in his wisdom, when we rest in his word, when we walk according to what he has for us. But then we saw the last type of rest, this new heaven and new earth rest, this eternal rest. It's comforting, isn't it, that one day when we die, those in Christ will enter into an eternal rest with God. We can take peace in that. So he gets all that through. And then in verse 12, in verse 13, what does he do? He says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. As he moves into verse 12, it's as if he anticipates. He says, you know, how are we going to live under this rest? How are we going to know the true spiritual condition of our hearts? How do we determine as Christians if we're living out of this rest? What does God do? God has orchestrated the means of his word to guide us along in this growth of sanctification. And so God's word is living, it is piercing, it is discerning, it it, it works like a spiritual MRI on our hearts. It's like God uses the power of the Holy Spirit to act to do spiritual surgery on us. And here's what's amazing. When you are under the microscopic discernment of the word of God, what happens? The Holy Spirit begins to show you things. The Holy Spirit begins to reveal what you're doing. He reveals to the unbeliever, their need of Christ. He reveals to the Christian, they're walking after the things of the world. And what is the response to that? What do we need in light of that? Well, look at what he does in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. This is so exciting because he's really paving the way as to what it means to live as a Christian. He's showing them. He's saying, look, everything you can imagine, Christ fulfilled. Every need that you have, everything that you need. Jesus is your advocate. When you are exposed, when the word of God reveals, what do you need? You need a great high priest. And thanks be to God we have a great high priest. And notice what he does. Verse 14 and verse 16 gives us two commands, and each of the commands start out with the phrase let us. Look at verse 14. At the end of the phrase let us hold fast our confession. But then look at the end of verse 16. What does he say at the beginning of verse 16? Not only did we let us hold fast our confession, but at the beginning of verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Two commands we're going to analyze this morning in light of the reality that Jesus is our great high priest. The first one this morning, let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest. Have you ever been running and uh, you wanted to stop and the person you're running with says, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. Problem is, my friends want to stop too. But I do remember times, though, in athletics where we couldn't stop. And, uh, you know, regardless of what sport, you have to keep going. And somebody says, man, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I want you to think of something. This really hits right in the center of the audience that he's writing to. They're tempted to go backwards. And he's saying, no, man, keep going. Keep persevering. Keep moving. Why? Because we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. And you may be thinking, I don't understand the lingo of a great high priest as an American in 2021, maybe your understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament is not real adequate. I want you to remember this Jewish crowd understood the ins and the outs of what it meant to live under a priesthood. And here he says, let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest. He says in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. Um, last the last two nights, I went up. I went over to Hartsel and spoke to teenagers at a disciple now. And uh, I don't know. The older I get, um, I feel like it's. I, I pray I'm still connecting, um, but I, I couldn't have known that by their facial expressions. And uh, man, it was tough. It, that's a, that's an intimidating feeling when there's not any facial expression at all. And uh, I think someone could have ran in the room in front of them and there wouldn't have been a facial expression. And, um, and so, but I kept thinking to myself, and, and they were precious kids. The next night, they, they were just feeling me out and nervous, and, and they, were, they were wonderful kids. And, and we got to begin to know each other more. But you know what I was telling those precious teenagers? I said, look. I said, we were talking about spiritual armor and we were talking about standing firm and that we can't stand firm if we don't know who we are in Christ. And I was trying to tell them, I was like these these, these cute little kids, seventh, eighth graders that were looking at me. And I was like, man, if you could only understand what it means to be a Christian and what God says is true. And I looked at them at one point and I said, here's the deal, you guys. I said, a lot of adults can't really even, they don't even really comprehend this. They don't even really chew on this. They don't even meditate on this. And isn't it the truth? You see, the words that he gives right off the bat, since then, we have, the word have is in the present tense. It's the idea that we continuously have a great high priest. It it, it would be used in a way that you would almost think of, this is something that is ours, that is a gift of God's grace wow, we have a great high priest. And, and he uses that word great. It reminds you of that term supreme, doesn't it? He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the high priest. He's a great high priest. And and, and so when we think about the, the priesthood, Christ is greater. And He's far greater than anything we can come up with. I want to read you a couple of passages that might help you understand how Hebrews frames Jesus as our great high priest. He mentions it over and over. I'm not going to read them all to you. Uh, Just flip with me real quick. I'm going to put them on the screens. The first one, Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In this passage, what's so exciting is that he refers to Jesus as our great high priest and he says, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus refers to his humanity. In chapter two, he showed us the necessity of humanity. But then he says, Jesus, the son of God, the son of God means he's one in nature, one in substance with God, the father. And so in this passage, you're going to see a couple of just critical truths. One is the sinlessness of Christ. If Jesus was not fully God, he couldn't have been sinless. But then we're going to see the the, the, the sympathy of Christ, and we're going to see the identification of Christ. And this is what's fun. If Jesus had not been the God-man, he could not have identified fully with us. So he had to be God. He had to be man. He had to be sinless, yet God called him to identify with us in our weakness as our high priest, And We see this in Hebrews 2.17, another one that pops out, Hebrews 3.1, this idea of the high priest nature of Christ. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the high priest of our confession And as we look at a passage that mentions the word high priest and mentions the word confession, I think it's important to notice that. Another one that really is fitting to look at is 726. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now notice this. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, I'm gonna look at this with you in just a moment, but ask yourself the question, was the Old Testament high priest able to meet these qualifications? The answer's an obvious no. We look at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this what? Once. For all, when he offered up himself, 28 says, for the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. When we look at the Old Testament, we read about the high priest, God was in his wisdom giving us a picture of what would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's important to look at here because now we we come to this passage and we read in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now this is fascinating because Jesus passed through the heavens. When we look at the Bible in the New Testament, we see reference to three heavens, we see a first heaven, a second heaven, and a third heaven. The first heaven is really just what you look at when you look up in the sky. The second heaven is like the universe. The third heaven, God's abode. And so we see that. And what's fascinating is he's gonna set this up in a way. He's saying, look, Jesus passed through the heavens and he's reminding them of the Old Testament when the high priest would pass through the outer court, the holy place, the holy of holies. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, let me give you the fulfillment of what you read about in the Old Testament. He's showing them how Jesus is the fulfillment. I I, I was, uh, you know, one of my favorite things I used to do is I would call my dad up and I was always nervous because I'd say, hey, can I run this over with you? And, and, and I always got nervous if he didn't agree with me. That <laughs> was really like, I mean, we, we disagreed sometimes, but I didn't like it. And uh, so I always like to run stuff by him. And so I can't do that anymore, but I can look at transcripts. And, and I consulted dad on this one. Here's what he had to say. He said, in the old covenant, the high priest was the person through whom and through whose ministry the people drew near to God. He was their mediator who represented them in the tabernacle and later the temple in the place called the Holy of Holies. Every year with the blood of bulls, he would go before God and make atonement for the sins of Israel. But the whole system of the priesthood was flawed because of man's sinfulness. It was very imperfect because all priests, including the high priests, were simply mortal, sinful men. We just read that when we looked at 726 through 28. He goes on. As sinful men, they had to offer sacrifice not only for the people but for themselves, and they had to offer them over and over and over. As mortal men, they could not continue in their office because of physical death. Even the sanctuary was imperfect because it was a worldly sanctuary, not the eternal dwelling place of God. The sacrifices were imperfect because the blood of bulls and of goats and other animals could not bring them to the desired goal of perfect peace towards God. The very fa- that the sacrifices were repeated yearly showed that the work of removing sin was not achieved. In the old covenant, man's access to God was imperfect. The ordinary priest had no access at all into the holy of holies. The high priest had access one time a year. And even when he had access, he could not stay in the presence of God, but he had to come out. He goes on, this meant that the people's communion with God, which his presence in the Holy of Holies symbolized, was lost as soon as he came out and the veil closed behind him. You get the picture here that, that that was not complete just as we saw when the children of Israel went into the promised land. It wasn't the ultimate rest. It was a picture of what was to come. Jesus is greater. I tell you, this gets so exciting because what did we read right off the, out of the gate when we looked at chapter one, verse three? Go back to chapter one, verse three. In chapter one, verse three, I mean, this is critical to the letter. And he comes right out of the gate, and and he says in verse 3, for he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then notice what he says. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I pick up there and I want you to listen to this. This is a remarkable, Hughes says this, on the other hand, Jesus, our great high priest after his once only sacrifice for sins on the cross, passed through the heavens, going through the first heaven, the second heaven and finally to the third heaven. And there he set down something no high priest had ever done because his atoning work was finished. He remains at God's right hand making intercession for us. This morning, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is greater than the old way. Jesus is greater than any way. Jesus is the great high priest, and that is his point. He's showing them, look, keep on going and look to Jesus Look to Jesus, I tell you I've mentioned this to you before, but to try to put this in more terms that may help us think about it a little different, these were people whose property had been plundered, and they were people who were facing the prospect of martyrdom i don't know if this is going to happen, and i don't say it to be like uh dramatic, but I think that there's at least uh there's there's evidence in other countries and there's evidence even in history that the way we're sort of moving as a country, we're moving in a direction that's going to be very uncomfortable for Orthodox Christianity. You know, the early centuries were, the Christians were persecuted. And you know why they were persecuted? They were referred to in the fourth century as haters of humanity. Why? You know why they were called haters of humanity? Because their teachings stood in the way of what people wanted to do in their lifestyle. You see anything happening right now? You see, what's happening is, is that history repeats itself. And and I want you to think of something. What if 20 years from now, what if five years from now, they said, hey, there's no problem with people with freedom of religion, but if you go to a church that actually believes this archaic book is the literal word of God, and you believe that certain sexual lifestyles are sinful, you believe this, you believe that, then that's okay, but we're gonna tax you at 63%. What do you think happens? Do you think next Sunday, church attendance drops by one third? I think in a lot of churches it would. What happens in a lot of, you realize this, this is not something that's just some like, uh, you know, story for effect, but there's countries in the world, Buddhist countries and Islamic countries, where if you profess Christ, you are not allowed to go to the best schools. And in those countries, by professing the name of Jesus, you do not have access to get good jobs. What happens when those things are on the table? You see what's happening? He's writing to people that aren't just going, you know what, Judaism looks pretty cool. I think I like to be a Jew all of a sudden in my religious ways. No, these are people that under the pressures of life are beginning to become tempted to walk away from what is uncomfortable to go back into something that is easy. And what does he say? He says, look, you gotta keep going, man. You gotta keep persevering. You gotta keep enduring. And when you're tempted to not keep going, when you're tempted to not persevere, consider Jesus our great, high, Priest, uh, th- th- this is so applicable to us today. I wonder today if you're here and if, I, if you were honest and we talked after church and I said, Hey, how's it going? and we talked and we got through the normal, you know, greetings and, and, and we got honest and I said, How are you doing in your faith? I wonder if some of you would be like, You know what? I'm struggling. I'm going through a lot of pain right now. My parents are sick. Uh, I'm going through a crisis with my kid. I'm I'm having a hard time in my job. I really wanted a promotion, it didn't happen. I'm a little disillusioned. I've been dreaming for that, it didn't work out. I wonder what you would say. I wonder what struggles, what temptations, what circumstances might put you in a place where you're just finding yourself not actively walking and moving in sanctification. This morning, I want you to be encouraged because the author of Hebrews wants us to understand, keep on moving, keep on going, keep on. You see, verse 14, the command is clear. The command is, he he tells them, he's like, look, guys, look, girls, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession, our profession of the faith, our confession that's evidenced even by our baptism. When somebody gets into the waters of baptism, what are they doing? They're making a public confession of the faith. He's saying, Look, hold it dear. Let us never move from it. Let us hold it fast. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast. The word hold fast means literally, it's like hold on for dear life. Uh, I think about when I was trying to think of the word picture that came to my mind, I think about, you know, at the end of a football game, your team's up by 10, and uh, there's two and a half minutes to go. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's eye formation, and it's give it to the running back, and usually there's a fullback, and they give it to the running back, and he puts his arms out, and it's clear that he's not looking to go the distance. He's just saying, there's one thing that's going to happen. You're not getting this ball, and you know what the defensive line does in those moments? Their only chance to get back in the game is to strip that ball. And they do everything they can, and that running back is literally holding firm. That's the idea. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Consider who you are. Hold fast to this confession. I I was looking at uh, different thoughts on this. Um, Matthew Henry says, let us never deny him, never be ashamed of him before men. Let us hold fast the enlightening doctrines of Christianity in our heads, the enlivening principles of it in our hearts, the open profession of it in our lips, and our practical and universal subjection to it in our lives. Hold fast your confession. So we see right off the bat, let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest. Let us persevere. But number two, what's the second command? At the beginning of verse 16, let us draw near with confidence. He is our sympathetic and sinless high priest. He is our sympathetic and sinless high priest. How does he build his argument? Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He gives a double negative and basically is saying we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I want you to think about people that are under the physical stresses of life. This is a term that means physical weakness. It can mean sufferings, trials, uh. And they're going through these weaknesses, and and think about the pastoral heart of the author of this letter, and he's saying, "Look, you got to keep going. You got to keep going, keep going, keep persevering, keep moving. Consider Jesus our great High Priest." But now he says, "Look, I know you're hurting. I know you've got weaknesses, but I want to tell you something about our great High Priest. He's not just great because he's sinless. He's great because he sympathizes with us. I'll tell you." Um, in, in my own journey as a Christian, uh, there's been so many times in my life where I knew that God desired for me to pray to him. I knew that God was holy. I knew that I needed to bring my needs before the Lord. I knew that I wasn't to be anxious, but to literally cast my anxieties upon him. But there's been so many times in my own journey that I've lost sight of this incredible, beautiful truth that I'm not just going to a God who asked me to come before him, I'm going to a God who understands me. I think we forget that, don't we? We forget because we go, he's God, but we forget, no, the the miracle of the incarnation is that God became man, perfect God, perfect God, perfect man as he lived, but fully man, fully God, and what happens in that? Because he identifies with us in the incarnation. Remember John 1:14, for the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and Jesus was tempted in his life and in his ministry. He says, we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize. The word sympathize means to show compassion, to understand. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days? He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, I was reading some definitions of this. Um, It's to sympathize, one person says, is to have a common feeling, to feel in consequence of what another feels, to be affected by feelings similar to those of another, in consequence of knowing the person to be thus affected. Um, Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. The word weakness, again, it, it means physical weakness, uh, bodily weakness, sickness. He, I mean, you could literally broaden this out. I mean, he understands us. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I love this. One man says, The Lord you serve, the Savior to whom you look, is not aloof from your trials, but fills them with intimate acquaintance. He is not disinterested or cold to what you are going through. He came to this earth. And took up our human nature precisely so that he might now be able to have a fellow feeling with us. Therefore, he is eminently able to represent you before the throne of his heavenly father, pleading your cause, securing your place and procuring the spiritual resources you need. This is... This is wonderful. Spurgeon says how this ought to draw us to the Savior that he was made likened to ourselves, that he knows our temptations by a practical experience of them. And though he was without sin, yet the same sins that are put before us by Satan were also set before him. He was tempted in all things. I. One, Charles Ryrie says, not that Christ experienced every temptation man does, but rather he was tempted in all areas in which man is tempted. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. When we look at this and we see he identifies with us, he identifies with us. And and notice what he does. He, He frames all of that and he says, Jesus Christ identifies with you He was the God-man. He understands you. He then turns around in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I wonder where you're at this morning. I wonder where you're at in regards to your weaknesses. I wonder where you're at in regards to your failures I think sometimes we're not honest with each other about how we struggle. You notice that sometimes? We can, you know, especially uh, a lot of times people that tend to preach, people don't realize they struggle. I struggle massively. Um, I, I, I Sometimes you may think I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching sometimes to my heart because I'm in need of this more than anyone in the room. And, and, and we're looking at this and we go, wait a minute. Uh, sometimes we, we, we fail and sometimes we experience our weaknesses. And, and think about the context of the book of Hebrews. These people are hurting. These people are downcast. These people need to be reminded of who Jesus is. You remember when we first started, I had read this from someone else, but it really resonated. If we have a low Christology, if we have a low understanding of who Jesus Christ is, it inevitably rolls over into the ineffectiveness of our Christian lives. But when we begin to consider Jesus, And we gain the truth of who he is in chapter one and who he is in chapter two, and who he is as our great high priest. Everything begins to change. His grace begins to spur us on. We begin to literally sense his presence moving us in the direction, moving us to persevere. Because he starts out and he's like, Look, you got to persevere. But now he's like, Look, you got to pray. You got to pray because you don't understand you need to keep going because you got to consider the greatness of who he is but run before him in extravagant prayer because he is your great eye priest the word confidence here is phenomenal verse 16 let us then with confidence the word confidence means freedom in speaking Freedom in speaking. I think a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but there's been times as a Christian that I literally have had a wrong view of God. And I've had a view of God almost as if he was harsh and almost as if he was ready to immediately respond back. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not the picture of the New Testament. Yet for the Christian, for those in Christ they now have an advocate, they now have a mediator, they now have one who has been their substitute, they have one who's paid their price, and now, as Cully read earlier, we are no longer slaves, but we are children. And I'll tell you what, I mean, isn't it crazy what happens when you become a dad? Dads, (laughs) I can't tell you about what it's like to be a mom, but I can tell you about a dad and I'll tell you what, it's the most amazing thing. I, I, I used to never understand it. My dad, you know, was, uh, I, he, he, he was big in his own circles, but there were people that always couldn't get they, they felt like they couldn't get to him. But let me tell you something: when I needed him, I just walked in. When I needed him, and he was at the church and he was in a meeting, if I needed him desperately, I walked right in. Why? Because I'm a son. I'm a child. If I needed him, I called him, he'd answer me in a meeting. If I needed him, I had full access. You may not have had full access, but I did, because I'm a child. And this morning, I want you to see this, you may be here, you're overwhelmed with life, you're overwhelmed with your weaknesses, you're overwhelmed with trials, you're overwhelmed with distresses, but I want you to see the beauty and the majesty of your great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ you are invited because he is your substitute. He is your mediator. He is the one who paid the price. And now you have full access to openly with confidence, freely speak before him. You know, you ever watch those Kings in medieval movies? Pretty scary dudes, aren't they? and they're on the throne and somebody gets permission to go before the king and they're scared to death. Why? Because if they say something wrong, what do they often say? Off with their heads. They're toast. They're done. Not that way with a child. We confidently have freedom in speaking. We, we come before him. I, I love this because, you know, think about this. In the old covenant, in the old system, and remember, that even, not even all the priests had access to the Holy of Holies. And the high priest only had access once a year, but even then it was temporary. Even then it was just a picture. And and you remember when Jesus is dying on the cross and you remember right before he dies, what happens to the veil in the temple? The veil is ripped in two. And what was the picture? The picture was you no longer need a mediator of a high priest. The high priest offered up animal sacrifices. Jesus Christ offered up the sacrifice of himself. And having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And now because he has made a way. I'll tell you what this does. When you begin to start reading the Bible and you start looking at chapter upon chapter upon chapter, this absolutely destroys works-based religion. You may be here today and you're still under the burden of it. You're under the burden of like, I've got to do ceremony, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And your whole mindset, even though you hear grace and would agree with it, the mindset of how you approach God is based on your works. And what does this show us? The only hope we have in life or death is Jesus Christ and his saving work for me. That's our only hope. He he did the work. He did the work. How do I enter into Sabbath rest? I, by the grace of God, recognize I can't do it. But thanks be to God, Christ did it for me. You see, we come with confidence. We come with confidence, but what does he say in verse 16? let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. I tell you, I love this because the word of God exposes us and what so often happens is we, we, we see our sin, the Holy Spirit's faithful to reveal it and so often what do we need when we deal with the consequences of our sin? They're still real even as a Christian. We need God's mercy, And God gives us lavish mercy to bear up under even the consequences of our sin. God gives us grace to keep going. God gives us grace to deal with temptation. All kinds of stuff is here. But I love this. He tells them to draw near. The word draw near is such an amazing word because it just means to, to come, to come near, to come near. He uses it all through the book of Hebrews. I'll read you just a couple, Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, what? Draw near to God. And that's the key. Look at the next phrase. Through him. You remember, this isn't Pauline, but when Paul writes, do you remember? You know why it's so significant that Paul says, in him, with him, over, over a hundred times he uses it in his letters. Why? Because our access Our ability to walk into the throne room of God is through the work of Christ. It's not because we walk in. It's not because our merit. It's not because of our works. It's because of the perfection, the perfect obedience of Jesus, the throne of grace, the throne of grace. Think about that. The throne of grace, unmerited favor, the throne of grace, the God who would give us and transform us by his enablement, his unmerited favor, and find grace to help, he says, in time of need. The word help is interesting. It's used in Acts 27. And it's on one of the voyages here, the ship was in trouble. And what did they have to do? After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird, there it is, To undergird the ship, (laughs) what do we need when uh, we blow it? What do we need when we're in a miserable place? What do we need when we're overwhelmed with our failure? What do we need when we're dealing with our sin? What do we need in the midst of difficult circumstances to trust God? We need the Holy Spirit to give us help. And aren't you thankful that because he's our great high priest, he stands ready to give us help? This morning, I pray that you would see that we're to let us hold fast our confession. He's our great high priest. Let us draw near with confidence. He's our sympathetic and sinless high priest. Where are you at today? Are you discouraged? Are you hurting? Are you facing your weakness? Uh, I tell you, I've got an assignment for you, and it's going to be one you're going to have to work at because... It's easy, isn't it? I know from my own self, sometimes I'll preach a message and I'll walk out of here and I'm not applying it within 10 minutes. You ever do that? I know y'all don't do that. It's easy to like hear something and walk away and forget it, isn't it? But I want you to ask yourself something. As you go through your week and as you deal with your trials and as you deal with people and as you deal with circumstances and as you deal with frustrations and as you deal with disillusionment, we all have it from younger people to older people. I want you to ask yourself the question, how is the knowledge that Jesus is my great high priest change my perspective in this situation? How is the fact that Jesus is my great high priest change my response? Because so much of what we are reading in Hebrews, even back in Hebrews chapter two, verse one, remember what he said? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I tell you, the older I get, I think I'm realizing that The gospel, you don't get to a place with the gospel where you say, well, I got that. Let's move on to the next thing. You just grow in amazement and you grow in wonder of the goodness of Jesus. This morning, keep going, Christian. It's only in Christ. He's your high priest. This morning, run to him in prayer. He's your high priest who welcomes you to come before him. And the throne of his grace. Maybe today you're with us and, and you've never come to know Christ. And, and, and you're sitting here and you're thinking, wait a minute. I, I've never been free. I've never experienced freedom. I want you to know that uh, it, it, is the, it is the duty, it is the call of God to the minister to urge people to respond to the good news. Not to manipulate you because that doesn't work, but to urge you to respond. And what I mean by that is today, if you're here and, and you're thinking, wait a minute, you mean to tell me I've never understood it, I've never seen it, but Jesus Christ did this work for me and he invites me to receive it by faith and believe on him to be his child? Today, if that's you, respond to him in obedient faith and believe on Christ. But Christian, if you're here today, just just whatever God leads you to do, respond to him in obedience today. Remember, the unbelieving Israelites did what? They heard the good news, but how did they respond? With unbelief. So today, God calls us to hear the good news and receive it with belief. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you. I, Lord, I pray that we would... Uh, that God, these truths would sink in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that uh, this reality and this knowledge of who you are would change us. I pray, God, it would change families. I pray that it would change our whole approach in life as how we live. And oh God, I pray today that that we would leave with such a, a just worshipful attitude towards our great high priest. We praise you, Lord, for making purification for our sins. And Lord, I pray that it would compel us by your grace to not only persevere, but to pray regularly, to pray as a lifestyle before you, to find grace and experience mercy, to find help in time of